Everyday peacemakers are not professional humanitarians. We're everyday people who are learning to see God and ourselves in others. We're daring to step off the road of comfort and immerse into reality. In the face of injustice, conflict, and violence, we are choosing to contend, not by getting even, but by getting creative in love. Everyday peacemakers are everyday people who are embedded within a world divided by difference, and these are our stories. Welcome to Everyday Peacemaking, a global immersion podcast hosted by me, Haley Mitsui, John Huckins, and Jer Swigart. And as always, we're going to ease into this week's conversation with a question of the week. It's time for our question of the week, gentlemen. Um, as always, this is Haley Mitsui uh, with the Global Immersion team. I'm joined by my co-hosts and Global Immersion co-founders, Jer Swigart and John Huckins. Um, our question this week is real simple, but I think very telling. A nice little window into who you are in this exact moment, and that is what books are you currently reading? Or, okay, that was a window into mine because I'm never reading only one book. But mm-hmm. what book yeah, yeah. are you reading, listening to? I love the question. I'm with you. I'm never only reading one book. Uh, it's multiple books. I'm going to tell, tell you the two books that I'm um, reading right now. One of them I just finished listening to. And believe it or not, it was Mary Trump's uh, book. Oh, I heard about and, that. And um, Too Much and Never Enough. And I want to just say I'm so glad that I, I uh, accessed the book. And um, I, wanted to re- I wanted to read it, listen to it, because um, I've heard that Mary does a really good job from a psychological perspective. Um, unpacking uh, the the family story of Donald Trump, and um, and it, the the reason it was so important for me is is it it reminded me that behind every person, regardless of what you think of that person, there's a story, and oftentimes there's sto- there's stories of tragedy, and um, and that's that's very much so the case that um, unfolds in this book, and so it grew my empathy and um, and was really grateful. Uh, just to clarify. Which super PAC was it that had you say that just now that's sponsoring the podcast <laughs> going forward? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. If only I had a super PAC behind me funding my words, that would be incredible. What about you, John? I am. I just finished a wonderful novel called The Woman in Cabin 10. <laughs> and this came be uh, sponsored by my therapist, actually, who's like, hey, John, what are you reading? Because he was sensing that I was feeling a little tense. And I'm like, ah, oh, books on political ethics and, you know, some some books on the masculine journey that have been just formed by our purity shame culture. And he's like, you know, you ever read a novel? Just, you know, slow down a little bit. And so he basically, the, my assignment out of therapy was to read a novel. And that's what this was. And, it, and I have had two books this year I've read because they were endorsed by the one and only Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> <laughs> mm. ah, you're a Reese book club fan. Jan finds them and then she hands them to me when she knows I need them. And this was one That's of them. Awesome. And it was so fun. That's and it's awesome. set up in uh, nice. Scandinavia on a cruise ship. And it's a mystery thriller. Who on the ship uh, has, has made bad choices? So, Hales, what do you got? Well, I never read one book at a time because I'm very mood oriented, Um, but I am going through uh, Reclaiming My Theology put out a book for Advent, and I'm going through that with our daily contemplative gathering. So that's one that I'm reading every day. 
And then um, I'm also reading, you guys can't see, but the guys can see here is uh, Howard Thurman's Meditations of the Heart, which are all just little um, excerpts and kind of musings on, on life and faith. And he is one of my favorite mystics. And, uh, you know, to balance it out here, I'm also reading the zine that my friend made from Radical History Club called uh, COINTELPRO, the government program to discredit and control civil rights radicals. Ooh, wow. Um, you know, and then I'm listening to the... Keep it going, Hales. What else <laughs> got? No, this is just when I'm out on my walks or I'm working out, I have to have something fun to listen to. And so I've been making my way through the To All the Boys I've Loved Before um, trilogy. Uh, and I'm on the third one now. It's a YA novel. I'm very into YA romance um, books. Is it awesome? Is the trilogy awesome? Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, there's actually two books or two of them are now made into movies on Netflix. But, you know, the lead character is half Asian. She's half Korean, half white. And so, you know, I, I didn't I know you were I didn't know you were saying a book title. I thought you were about to talk about all the young men you used to love oh, before. Or something that's, like that. you know, a whole other podcast. OK, I mean, your husband's here <laughs> producing this, so I felt a little uncomfortable. <laughs> He's he's her. He he's no stranger to he, know, to, he knows those he stories. He knows my deep love for Adam Driver. But anyways, so Jer, tell us who we're going to be hanging out with today. Uh, this story that we're about to hear is um, by an everyday peacemaker named Mindy, and uh, uh, you're going to hear her reflect on a very unique interrupted relationship and what it has meant for her and her family. Uh, to mend that divide uh, in, uh, in some costly ways. And so let's get right to it. Yeah, I'm thrilled to acknowledge and to thank one of our core sponsors of the Everyday Peacemaking Podcast, the organization Respero. They're committed to making safe and life-giving conversations available and accessible to everyone. In short, they, they offer free counseling and training in counseling as well. And, um, you know, for me, this feels like it's been a uniquely rough year, but... I would say if we're honest, every year has its ups and downs if we're, if we're truly seeking to live into wholeness. And so personally, uh, one of my central lifelines has been in, to be in regular counseling, tending to my head, heart, soul, aligning values with actions, having someone to listen to stuff uh, that I need to get out so it doesn't fester inside and tear me apart. And so for me, it's been through a sparrow that I've had access to this type of deep care and accompaniment. And if you're in personal personal need of a counselor, wanting to grow personally, or even get trained as a counselor, we encourage you to check out Respero.org where they offer personal counseling because they believe no one should struggle alone. Respero um, offers counselors at no cost, faith-based counseling, and no matter where you live. They also offer online courses and workshops. Their courses are designed to give you hope and to pro provide a blueprint for loving yourself, loving others, and flourishing in your spiritual life. They want to meet you where you are, whether your motivation is to help yourself or help those around you. And lastly, they offer counselor training. This gives you the knowledge, skills, and self-awareness to identify and use your gifts in many settings, but especially as part of their counseling team. Uh, ultimately, their goal, Respero's goal, is to have more and more healthy and healing conversations happening in this world. So check them out, respero.org. Mindy, thanks so much for spending some time. I've been excited about this conversation uh, from the moment we booked it. And uh, so thank you so much for, for dialing in for us. Yeah, thank you. I'm really honored to have been invited into this conversation. This is exciting. It, like we're, we're obviously in the, our second season now and, and 
uh, for our entire team, um, sharing moments like these with, uh, with everyday peacemakers like you has been such a highlight. So we're excited uh, about where this conversation, where your story takes us. Before we dive into the conversation, Mindy, can you just give us a glimpse of who you are, like locate yourself a little bit for us, and then we'll dive into the, dive into the story. Yeah, definitely. So I'm Mindy Plick. I have known Global Immersion and your team probably for three or four years, and it started with a um, immigrants journey border trip or immersion trip on the Tijuana San Diego border. And that was really what started my connection with all of you. I live in Orange County, California. And for those who aren't familiar with that area, it's a um, very diverse and also quite uh, conservative little pocket of California. And I've lived here almost my whole life. Um, I live with my husband and our three children. And um Due to the like the context of or the content of this conversation, I think it's worth mentioning that my husband is black, I'm white, and our three children are biracial. They're all teenagers, and so um, hopefully that kind of gives you an idea of where I am and and who I am. And I'll I'll talk a little bit more about um, what we do for a living in later in this conversation. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks, Mindy. And and I think that's like in setting up this conversation as well, obviously we find ourselves in, um, in this collision, this crazy collision of a global pandemic, um, roiling racial tension. Uh, we're in the, the aftermath of an election and, um, and in obviously political turmoil and all of those things from our, our vantage point, are widening many of the divides that have already existed uh, in, in that that existed before the pandemic even began. Right. You know, and so what what we want to uh, what we want to explore with you is what everyday peacemaking looks like in the midst of that. And um, and so give us tell us a story of uh, of everyday peacemaking and 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 specifically for you as it pertains to interrupted relationships. And because I, I think many of our listeners right now are navigating a reality in which previous relationships that have been secure are now interrupted for various reasons. And so if ever there was a moment for us to draw near as everyday peacemakers and mend those divides, it is now. And so um, bring us into a story because I know that I know that you've got a good one to share. Yeah. So I want to start by um, just talking about the relationship between my family and our church, because that's what the story is about. Um, I have been at this church. It's a PCUSA church here in Orange County. I've been here since I was two, almost my entire life. Um, actually, my dad was a pastor here for 34 years. Uh, he retired a few years ago. But these are the people who raised me. You know, this is this is like family to me. And my husband and I are both on staff there right now. Actually, um, right now I'm uh, serving as the director of children's ministry, and my husband is the worship leader. And um, we we love these folks deeply, and we know that that we're deeply loved by them. Um, but interestingly, I'm not surprisingly for many people, I'm sure, uh, my husband really never wanted to be at this church because of whiteness. As a as a, you know, as a black person, this was not a this was this did not feel like home to him, uh, especially when we first got married and when he first was um, introduced to the congregation, and he you know he jokes around like he was married into it, and that's why he's here. This relationship was interrupted 
um, and it's kind of hard to talk about this because I know that folks who are listening are people who are involved in this story and, and I love deeply. And so um, I just want to make sure that, that they understand that I share this with the deepest love and respect. Um, but this, this relationship between our family and our church was interrupted by um, the silence and the lack of action in the face of racism. And this includes the systemic killing of black and brown people, like even acknowledging that, talking about it, um, addressing it as a congregation. The thing is, it being a part of a white U.S. American church, this is like how I grew up. It, it, it was just kind of how we lived. It was the whiteness that we existed in and benefited from. And I wouldn't say it was like intentional, but it's it is how it is. And so um, it almost felt like within our church, it had developed into a virtue of colorblindness, very well-meaning, you know, with, with the intention to love everybody. But our family has really, really been struggling, um, especially the longer we stay as a family at this church, we've been struggling. And so I need to make it really clear, like I I mentioned it already, I didn't fully understand how my husband felt when he first became a part of this church when we first got married. And I didn't understand his reservations about marrying me, because our church was so welcoming. And so loving, it felt peaceful, you know, they were really, truly wonderful with him. But over time, I chose to see and listen to my husband and really allow myself to feel uncomfortable and to really like check my own self and challenge my own very naive thoughts about race and listen to other black and brown people and listen to my children. They've been incredible teachers. I have been able to see what I failed to see at first. Would you say that like your your learning curve, I, I mean, it, it's natural, right? This is your community of origin. These people have shaped your identity. This learning curve for you, though, that, that you were on, I'm assuming that that predated uh, George Floyd's execution. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's been a learning journey my whole life, but it really shifted once I became family with someone who was living as a black person in a very white community. Mm -hmm. Then May 25th, 2020, George Floyd was murdered. And um, he was murdered very publicly and very violently. And the whole world was watching. And our, our family really struggled, as I'm sure every black family or biracial family or non-white family around the world was struggling. And we realized that um, we really needed to make a decision about our church. And this decision was dependent on the response of our church to this murder of George Floyd. Do we stay or do we go? I felt at that moment that it was my responsibility to help be a part of guiding our church into a healthy response, or at least (laughs) a response to this murder and to this, you know, the exposure of this racism that has always been there. It's always been, it's always been there, but we just have chosen not to see it. And so in response to that, a small group of very dedicated peacemakers from our church, we 
developed what we call the Vulnerable Communities Task Force. And this is a task force that we had started originally in response to the 2016 election. And it had been ended by our church leadership a couple years ago. And I didn't really understand why. But we realized we have to have this task force um, to serve as a group to help guide our church, our congregation into a path of peacemaking. You know, Dr. Martin Luther King, he talks about the the white moderate wanting the kind of peace that is the absence of tension rather than the peace, which is the presence of justice. And we knew that if we as a church were going to be faithful as followers of Jesus, that we must work for true peace with the presence of justice in our church, in our community. Dr. King also talks about the white moderate, like wanting to set the limits for this, wanting to set the timetable for how freedom happens for others. And so as a church, specifically as a white U.S. American church, the decision that we make, we realize that it can't be based on our own comfort or our own security Mm. or our own Mm. whiteness. You know, it had to be made based on the lives of the most vulnerable people among us the lives of like our black and brown brothers and sisters and siblings and the lives of those who cannot breathe. Our next steps as this vulnerable community task force, I mean, we did several things. I'll just name a few of them. My husband shared in church. He preached one Sunday and he shared his experience, um, what it's like to be a black person living in the midst of whiteness. Um, We did a book study on the color of compromise by Jamar Tisby. And I know a lot of churches did that. Um, in response to George Floyd. And we were very clear that if we were to do that, that wasn't all we were going to do. We were going to, um, that was just the beginning. And so we, after that book study, we decided our next step needed to be a prayer service um, of lament, confession, repentance, and then prayer for the Holy Spirit to guide our next steps. And so it was really incredible because, you know, because of the pandemic, it was a virtual event, but the congregation came together. And after studying the color of compromise, like they had really that that broke all of us in a really important way. One by one prayers of confession and repentance were shared by people saying, you know, Lord, I, I didn't know, please forgive me. I didn't know. Lord, open my eyes, show me how my racism is affecting other people. And these were corporate prayers as a church and individual prayers. And um, what's really exciting is that the next like step in the next direction that our church is taking in this next year, um, the leadership decided that our focus is going to be on justice and community. And so we are going to focus on listening to the voices in our community, um, meeting with decision makers, advocating with and for those who are being marginalized. And because of this huge shift, because our church congregation has chosen to see the existence of racism, to see how we are, have been a part of it, how we are complicit in it, um, we've decided to stay in this church because we see that these folks truly are like willing to get uncomfortable and face really difficult things out of love for their neighbor. I think it's fascinating that um, colorblindness is, uh, is 
blindness. <laughs> and in fact, it's not a virtue. It's, uh, it's a deficiency. Right. Uh, what I think is fascinating and maybe a, an image of restoration here, a mustard seed of restoration here, is that the virtue of colorblindness is now hopefully now being critiqued. Absolutely. Um, and, and interrogated. And you guys are seeing more clearly and more accurately the reality of race, racism, whiteness, white supremacy, and how it's shaped your, the expression of, um, of Christian faithfulness for your church. Yep, absolutely. What are some of the other mustard seeds of, um, of restoration that you're seeing spring to life? Well, one that is subtle, but I think really important for our family is that I feel that we are truly seen authentically now. We are, my husband and my children are seen by my congregation in a way in which they were not seen before. They see their blackness rather than being colorblind, as you just said, they, they see their color and they are seeing how that informs how they live in this community, in our church. Another example of restoration, I would say, is our church's willingness and desire to w- go further in this journey. And actually, our next step in this new year is that we are going to be studying actually your book, Mending the Divides, Jer. We're hey gonna yo. I know. All right. All right. <laughs> and because our church wants to know what to do, what do we do next? At yeah. the end of our uh, uh, of the study of um the color of compromise, every online group that studied this book together, they made a list of like what next. And we decided that what's next is to learn how to actually take the peacemaking practices, see, immerse, contend, and restore that you outline in this book or lay out in this book, and how to use those practically in our context, at our church, in our community. That's amazing. I mean, and, and that's that's exactly why we wrote the book, right? We wrote it for leaders like you yeah. and faith communities like yours, um, not just to offer a, another set of tools to an already complex equation of faithfulness, right. um, but as an invitation to become substantively different kinds of people who join God and others in waging peace in the world. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so that's, that's exciting um, for us to hear that this is going on. Last, yeah. last question. Yeah. Um, and, and just hit this really briefly. I'm wondering from, as a mama's perspective, um, right. what are you seeing happen in your kids as they're, as they're watching and participating in the transformation of this predominantly white faith community? I see that they're feeling safer to speak their truth and to say how they're actually feeling rather than to say what they think others are expecting them to say. Thankfully, our youth director is amazing. He has been incredible at um, truly seeing my kids and the other kids in the youth group. That's where our kids really spend their time in the church is with this youth group. And so they are able to really live into who they are. They are seen. And our our youth director actually really shows what it looks like to see others too. Mindy, this is a gift. You've you've given us a gift in the story and and we eagerly watch uh, with a lot of restorative anticipation for what's going to transpire with you, with your family and and with this faith community. So um, on behalf of the Everyday Peacemaking community, thank you for, um, for waging peace and for telling the story. Thank you so much, Jer. The, the thing about Mindy that I've been struck by for our years of being in relationship with her is how um, how accessible she is as a human being and how accessible her story is for so many of us. That she 
she's a remarkable woman in the in the way that she's perpetually interrogating her own position, her own history, theology, uh, married to a black man with kids that are biracial, endlessly waking herself up, but still uh, inside of a system of a, of a, cron- a construct of white Christianity that needs serious renovations. Uh, and she's able to walk with that community in a, in such a generous way, when at the same time understanding that her family is has is directly impacted by so much of the dysfunction and the way that she talks about that tension with clarity and also with generosity is really intriguing to me. You know, I don't know if 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 she needs to be <laughs> that generous, but she's chosen to be. And the fact that she describes her own journey as actually intersecting with the church's journey to the point where they're changing stuff now. Like there has been a transformation, a conversion of sorts. Uh, and I wonder what it means for people like Mindy planted in those communities who do that kind of self-interrogation and inform the way the church interrogates itself, how much that can begin to shape things. Yeah, I was definitely struck continuously. I, I feel this kind of tension in me as I listen to her story because I think there's so such a strong thread of bravery. Um, she and, and also in my journey of knowing her as a friend, the she has continually spoken up and spoken out and not about something that she is on the outside of, but something that she's very much on the inside of. And that cost that's very costly. And that can be really scary because as she said, she's been at that community since she was two years old. So this isn't just a, um, this isn't just a community that, you know, you start, I don't know that her family started going to because it was the hit church in the city. Like this is a church that, um, that shaped her and formed her and she's, and she is having to stick to her convictions in ways that are really uncomfortable. And so I think that's really, really brave. I think I feel for her family. Just, I think this is where the tension is, is I consider other people who might be in similar spots. um, The answer might be to stay and the answer might be to leave. So I, I, I admire and applaud Mindy's tenacity with this community. And also it's not, it may not always be the right decision for everyone in a position where you're hitting your head up against opposition or community is making your family feel unsafe. The answer isn't always to stay and lean into that. Sometimes I think the answer is to leave. So as I'm hearing her talk, I'm just feeling this dissonance in my body where I'm like, oh man, the bravery and also the sacrifice um, that, that, that family has experienced. I really resonate with that Haley. Cause I, like I, how many times have, have we heard in the last eight months, a similar sentiment by people saying like my church didn't speak up on and therefore I'm out. And, um, when, when I was listening to, to her share her story, I was, I was stunned by like the, the cost of, them being out like a lot rode on that church's response to George Floyd's execution. And for them to say, if they don't respond well, we're out. We're talking about their livelihood, right? They're both on staff in that space. And, um, 
And so that's, that's a big, that's a big deal for them. And it's not just like a, it doesn't sound like it was just like some kind of internal wrestling, like their lives depend on churches like theirs, not just saying a thing, but taking a journey and then doing better. And, um, but the second thing that I want to raise up out of that is, um, Mindy and her husband didn't sit by and say, like, what's the church going to say about this? They have been engaged in the practices of seeing and immersing into the realities of racism and systemic injustice and whiteness and all of these things. Um, and when it came to what is the church going to say, their their moment of contending was, we have to help a church that doesn't know what to say learn how to say something. You know, and um, so I like the, the her her getting creative in love in that way was it was really her fighting for this church, um, and and in in fighting for this church, I think fighting for her husband and fighting for her kids and fighting for her context, right? And so and I so I really rate like it, this this creativity and love, this costly way of contending, um, looked like her putting her neck on the line. Uh, rather than just standing back and, and listening and hoping. Uh, this is kind of turning the corner a little bit, but as I was also listening to her story and her own journey, and then also the journey of the churches, which, you know, in a way has its parallels, it really took her marrying a Black man for her to uh, acknowledge the, the, the immensity of racism. And she, you know, talked about the colorblindness of their, of the church, um, really before the murder of George Floyd. And I think, um, in this time where our communities are just increasingly segregated for this, that, and the other reason, it, it just really reinforced and reminded me the, the criticalness of being proximate to people that are different than us, um, that's the, oh, I, I can't think of any other way to build true empathy and therefore be willing to put your neck out on the line for something if you don't truly um, see or acknowledge like the impact of it, you know, in, in not just on paper, like looking at statistics of how different communities are differently impacted by COVID, but you actually know, you know, a whole neighborhood of undocumented people who have all had COVID because they can't stay home from their work, you know? And so it just is, it, that was just something that kept coming up for me as she was talking as I'm like, man, we don't know until we can't not see it. The, the, the hyper practical nature of what it looked like for, for her and her family to walk with this church towards a just response to George Floyd's murder, like you said, Jer, rather than just critique it, watching with a critical eye for how they were going to fumble, <laughs> they they made sure they actually picked up the ball and and went the right direction with how to confront and name racism for what it was and do something about it. What I what I thought was so compelling is not only did it require that, that they and the church name what true peace is. She said true peace is a peace with justice. And so that to, to name what it is for the community to understand, it's not just some kumbaya 30,000 foot idea. This is what it looks like. It looks like justice, especially in the, in the life of George Floyd and his family. Uh, and then let's go to work on, on doing our own study. So they go into a book study. They have a sermon. 
But they don't stop there. They make it formational. They talk about a service of lament, which was both personal and collective lament and confession and repentance. And now it's moving towards, well, how is this shaping us into a particular kind of people that show up in these conflicts every single day from this, not only just to respond to George Floyd, but with our lives, because that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. I just think there's so much wisdom and so much practicality to how they responded and how, for those of us listening in here, how are we thinking about this? Again, not just at, through that eye of critique of how your church is going to fumble, but how are you building a path and giving your life now to walk on this journey with them? Because many people don't have these tools, and we can learn from Mindy and put some of these rails down so we have a path forward. Yeah. Yeah, I, I want to raise up one more time this idea of colorblindness and the virtue, the, the perceived virtue of colorblindness. I think in this conversation, it's exposed that colorblindness is not a virtue. And, um, and, and for those of us who are listening in, um, I, I, think, I think many of us, especially dominant culture, white folk have been groomed to understand colorblindness as a virtue. And I wanna invite us to consider that the, um, the baptizing of colorblindness as a virtue, um, there's actually a theology that undergirds that. And, um, and so for faith leaders and for people of faith, especially um, our white sisters and brothers who are listening in, um, there's, there's a theology uh, that prioritizes whiteness that shows up in the behavior of indifference and apathy that Mindy and her family were responding to in this church that sounds like the uh, color blindness being a virtue. And uh, so an invitation uh, to see more accurately is to, for those of us who still see colorblindness as a virtue, let's interrogate that a bit. Um, what, what, is the, what is the behavior and the theology that lie, that lie behind that? Um, I, I think that there's an invitation for us to see more accurately. Um, and in that journey, I think we'll, we'll recognize the deficiency of colorblindness and, and the possibilities, the restorative potential um, of seeing more clearly. Uh, and so, Mindy, thank you for uh, for the stories that you live um, and uh, the stories that you dare to tell. Uh, thanks for inviting us into the process of interrogation and transformation. Uh, and um, thanks for inspiring us and I think so many people of faith and faith leaders around the country uh, to, to dare to take a similar uh, a similar path. So, friends, God's restoration is happening. Uh, go and participate in it, and know that you are not alone. For more information on the work of Global Immersion, visit globalimmerse.org. Music in this episode was by King's Kaleidoscope and The Eagle and Child. This podcast is produced by Global Immersion and Adventure Vision Productions. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate us, and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your excellent podcasts.